0: your podcast hey there everybody and welcome back today we are going to read Hellblazer number 11 and just a little catch up on what happened in the last issue we got the final resolution between the Resurrection Crusade and the damnation Army and John somehow fooled both of them. And he came out on top. So the way he did that was after being severely injured by jumping out of a moving train, John was in the hospital. Nergal made a deal he couldn't refuse, literally. And the main part of that deal was that John would get transfused with Nergal's blood, which would heal him. And he would then be on the side of hell in this fight between good and evil. And in the background, there was a prophecy going on that said that Zed, John's former lover, was to be the new Mary. So she was kidnapped by the resurrection crusaders and they had been preparing her for becoming pregnant by an angel of god and that way she could be the new mary and give birth to the new christ on earth so after john got his demon blood transfusion uh he did heal his body was all mended up he was going to follow through with the plan that nergal had set up which was he was going to visit zed in glastonbury where the resurrection crusaders were keeping her And if he slept with her, then he would taint her because he's got demon blood now. So if he sleeps with her, he contaminates her. And that is exactly what happens. He makes her unclean and unworthy of being the new Mary. And in the last issue, we saw a big scene where a vortex was coming down from heaven. And because she was unclean, the power of God was unleashed and ended up like purifying the resurrection crusaders, meaning it blew up their whole little compound and everybody inside was killed but John didn't just stop there. Of course he did not want their gall to win and the side of hell. So he came up with his own plan to have a different kind of immaculate pregnancy. And this plan involved Swamp Thing and Swamp Thing taking over John's body and then letting Swamp Thing use him as the vessel to impregnate Swamp Thing's wife, Abby. Now there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped around that that I'm not gonna explain in this little intro, but basically Swamp Thing uses John's body successfully to impregnate Abby and not only impregnate her with John's seed, but also putting the spirit of the next elemental inside of that child as well. So that would be the supernatural part of this less than immaculate conception. So in doing this, John duped near Gaul, and he was not very happy about that because that meant that now hell lost as well. So he was very angry, and he told John that he'll be waiting for him in Newcastle. And the place of Newcastle is something that we've heard about before from John himself, where something very bad and traumatic happened to John in the past, but we haven't heard exactly what happened. And that's exactly what these next two issues cover. So first things first, with issue 11, we got the cover. It is completely black. There's a ghostly face of John Constantine staring out from the center of the page. The word Newcastle is written over his face in like scribbled letters. There's some torn bits of paper floating around that have words you can't really read on them, but they look kind of esoteric. And there's also the torn apart body of a doll. And we also see on the cover that this is written by Jamie Delano with art by Richard Piers Rainer and Mark Buckingham. And we start off on the first page with John returning to Newcastle. It is a very rainy day and he's walking down the streets smoking and he's thinking to himself, cold, dead gray sky bleeds bitter into a wind soured by the smell of rust. Like an ancient elephant, I have returned to the place of death. 10 years ago, this graveyard was empty, but it was raining then as well. And we see John is not just walking around willy-nilly. He's definitely going to a specific place because as he gets to a junkyard, he sees a man walking a dog and he asks the man, this is where the old Casanova club used to be? And the man answers, still is what's left of it since the bombing. And John replies, is it all right if I have a look around? And I guess the man walking his dog was the owner of this junkyard. So as John walks in, the man yells to him, suit yourself, man. Do you need any help? And John calls back over his shoulder. Nah, thanks. I'm just looking for memories. So John walks in, he looks around and there's a bunch of cars stacked up on top of each other. So this is like a traditional junkyard where there's just a bunch of cars that are crushed that have been stacked on top of each other. And as he looks around, his narration says, blind eyes stare from the shattered metal corpses, oiled black ground sucks at my feet and puddles swirl slicked with lurid rainbow light. I need all the help I can get. Memories are all that's left. And these cold ruined bodies laid out to rot, withering in the seeping acid rain. Gaunt, rusted memorials to those poisoned here and dead around the world, now buried in the decade. And as John's walking, he puts his hands on one of the cars and it just so happens that there is something lodged in the door loosely. And as it falls, John sees it and we see it hit the ground And it is the plastic arm of a baby doll. And as John looks at it as it splashes into a puddle on the ground, his narration continues. In those days, we were young, not innocent, but free, excited, strong. The world was ours to shape according to our will. But that was then, before Thatcher, before the Falklands War, before the country starving ate out its own heart, before hell impaled and toasted us, writhing over the roaring fires of our own inadequacies. Then we were a team. And as John says, then we were a team, we begin a flashback of John and all his friends when they were alive. And this is from 10 years ago, like he's been saying. So John is in his early 20s. And all these people that we're seeing are the younger versions of the ghosts that are haunting John. So we get a younger version of Frank and his girlfriend, Judith. I don't believe we've met Judith in Hellblazer, but she died in Swamp Thing, and she actually betrayed them during that run, so she died, but she doesn't haunt John. We see an older woman in this group of 20-somethings, and this is Anne Marie, the lady who eventually becomes a nun. We can see Richie Simpson, who was the computer hacker that helped John just a couple issues back and ended up getting trapped inside his own computer. We have Gary Lester, who was the guy from the first two issues of Hellblazer, who was eaten alive by the hunger demon. And the last friend of John's that we see is a young kid who's 12 years old now, and it is Benjamin, who is the nerdy kid with glasses. And then, of course, leading this group is a younger John. And over the top of this group of friends, we get some narration that explains a little bit about each of them so that we can understand their personalities. So it starts off just in the order that I did with Frank. And it says, Frank, on holiday from trouble in California, and Judith, who I met at the North Beach Ashram, studying tantric yoga, Anne-Marie, the lonely psychic, Fat, 40, and secretly in love with me. Richie Simpson, computer freak, deadhead, and quantum magic pioneer. Gary Lester, musician, counterculture clone, and small-time conjurer. Benjamin, the spooky 12-year-old genius and encyclopedia of Arcana and me. And we can see all of the friends are getting out of a van. And on the side of the van, it says mucus membrane because that is the punk band John was in at this time. And as they walk towards the Casanova Club, which I guess is in the center of this junkyard area, John looks up at it and says, Newcastle, huh? What a crud pit. Reminds me of Pittsburgh. And we can't see who else is talking out of the group because it's far away, but a couple of them add, so this is where Mucus Membrane made their debut. Not exactly the Fillmore, is it? And we ain't the Grateful Dead, neither. We're New Wave, ain't we, John? And as they're about to walk into the club, John turns to Gary Lester, who said that last thing and says... Sure, Gaz, yeah. So it seems Gary Lester isn't really part of the band. He's just kind of a hanger on. So John tries the doors and they're all locked and he says to his friends, it's all locked up. Better kick it in or we'll drown in this poxy rain. If Logue's in there, we'll just say we've come for the door money he screwed us out of. So Frank goes forward and kicks the doors in and he says, okay, who wants a drink? And as they walk into the Casanova Club, we see it's completely empty and no one's here. And John's narration says Everyone who moved in occult circles knew Alex Logue as a crabhead of the First Order, a sex and drug magician, but he had this club and we needed a gig for the band. After the set, he'd invited us down to his chapel to get smashed and do some magic with six nymphets and a bunch of seedy hippies. Lester was into it and I was tempted until I saw his little daughter Astra and the way he stroked her while she sat on his fat knee staring like a white-faced doll. So when Raymondi started to get reports of disturbances and phenomena in Newcastle, this seemed like the obvious place to look. So it seems John has played here with his band before, but that's not why he's here with his friends now. It seems he has already gotten into tracking down supernatural disturbances and figuring out what's going on with them. So as they look around, John notices that it smells really bad and he says, phew, it's rotten. And Anne-Marie begins rubbing her temples like she's getting a psychic feeling and she says, something awful happened here. And then as Benjamin looks around, he sees a door and he says, John, there's a cellar door and I heard sounds behind it. So John walks up to the door with his friends behind him and he says, right, let's have a look. And as John pushes it open and they enter, the narration says, when I was a kid, a truck used to go up our street taking awful and cows heads from the abattoir to the old Bates boneyard. You couldn't see inside it, but it laid a stench behind it which stuck to everything for hours and lined your throat and lungs with a slime of putrefaction. Once from the top deck of a bus, I got a glimpse down into the truck and spent a week of nights sweating, imagining how it would be to fall into that mess of splintered bone, torn flesh and eyeless skulls, wallowing, choking in the blood and bile and maggots. The scent of carnage is unforgettable, acrid, raw, a scent you can chew, And the reason why John is having this flashback of the smell is because as they walk down the stairs and into the cellar area, not only does the smell hit them, but they see a giant mess of bodies piled up that are torn apart and their guts hanging out everywhere. And it's just a jumbled mess of body parts. And because John is leading them, of course, he sees it first and he looks the most shocked out of everybody. Frank and Gary Lester just look like they don't know what to say. Richie's about to throw up. And Benjamin and Emery can't really see what it is past John, but they can definitely smell it. And we see that the name of this issue is Newcastle: A Taste of Things to Come. And as John sees this horrific mass of torn bodies, his narration says, In the darkness, something moves. A tail lashing. Breath rasping. Huddling forward for comfort. The others push me in. As my eyes accustomed to the lack of light, I count at least four separate heads before my sense is real. But just as John is taking all this in, All of a sudden they hear screaming from upstairs. So they all look upwards and we see Judith is looking at something because she hadn't quite gotten down the stairs yet. And she's got her hand over her face like she's horrified. And John's narration says, then upstairs, the screaming starts and John isn't sure what to do. There's obviously something going on in the basement, but now something's going on upstairs. So his narration continues, two choices, either face the mayhem up above or stay here in the abattoir. No contest. So without a second thought, really, all of them rush upstairs to see what's going on up there. And as they rush into the main room, they see a little girl doing crazy dances as she yells, no, please God, no, ah. But she has a weird smile on her face as she's dancing around and yelling this stuff. And as John sees the child, he says, Jesus, it's the little kid, Logue's daughter, Astra. And as the little girl continues to yell, Judith asks Frank, oh no, do you think she saw, you know, down there? And Frank answers, yeah, and heard it. And he's saying that she heard it because she's not just making random noises. It seems like she's mimicking the actual sounds of the bodies being torn apart. And I didn't see anything in the art that really said this, but apparently over the speakers, there's a record player blasting music, which is probably another reason why the little girl was dancing around crazy. So John tells Richie to go turn it off and he does. And once the music stops, the little girl stops dancing and Anne Marie walks over to her and says, hello and Asta who's kind of freaked out because it seems like she just came to now that the music stopped she looks at them and says what do you want and Judith comes over and she says take it easy sweetheart don't be frightened and Anne-Marie adds we're here to help you lovey but as Anne-Marie tries to put her hands on Astra's shoulders Astra begins to freak out and says don't touch me I don't want to do it anymore I don't like it and John says to Astra okay it's it's okay it's me John and Gary from the band, you remember? So Gary and John walk a little closer to her as she kneels down to the ground and Gary sits down next to her and says, what happened, Astra? What happened to your dad? And Astra replies very creepily, didn't you hear it? Norful thing got him. Norful thing, Norful thing, Norful thing. And John is worried by this, so he says to Ben, go and bolt that cellar door. And I guess Gary is freaked out by Astra's answer. So he leaves Astra alone and Anne Marie comes over and she tries to comfort the girl once again by putting her hands on her shoulders. And as Anne Marie does this, John says, Settle her down as best you can, Anne Marie. I'm going to try to hypnotize her. And Anne Marie says, I don't know if you should, John. She's so disturbed. Her mind's like, like a pack of hunting dogs. But John looks at her and says, It's got to be done, Duck. We can't do anything till we find out what happened here. Trust me, okay? And reluctantly, Anne Marie says, Okay. So Anne-Marie kind of holds Astra in place by her shoulders and faces her towards John. And John says to Astra, now, love, I want you to feel all warm and cozy, like you were snuggled up in bed. And Astra says to John, I don't like it in my bed because my dad always gets in there with me and he's all fat and hairy. He makes me do things like mommy used to do before she had the accident. And obviously we kind of already knew this, but that is very horrific But in the background of this talking, we see that Richie is getting high and he's offering some weed to Frank and Frank is loading up a shotgun. So out of those two, I think Frank has the right idea about what to do in this situation. Then we cut back to the now hypnotized Astra and she doesn't hold back anything. She explains exactly what happened in detail saying, and he makes me go down to the cellar too when him and his friends and girls from the club get drunk and take stuff and get bare and I have to watch while they touch each other. And then, I have to touch them, and they're all noisy and smelly, and sometimes he takes pictures of me and his friends, and I told him I don't like it. I told him, I told him, I told him! He should have listened. It wasn't my fault. One of them had too much of the stuff and hurts one of the girls. Then he's hurting me, and I get scared and angry, and no one will help. So I think and think, I think of the very worst thing that anyone could think of, and it comes... And it comes to help me. It's a norful thing. Partly it's a giant dog. And partly it's a monkey with a purple bum. Like at the zoo. But it's worse than that. It's all insidey out. It's sticky and it's got hearts and bits all dangling off it. And a huge horrible thingy. Like a man's. It gets them and it does it to them. Really fast. And this time they don't like it at all. They're screaming and screaming. But it doesn't mind. It just eats them all. Chews them up into sloppy bits. You can see their bones and jelly inside. And, and, and before she goes any further, John actually touches her forehead and says, Sleep now, girl, and forget. When you wake up, the Norfolk thing will be gone. I promise. And all the people who listened to that story were, of course, horrified. And just in case you didn't catch it, basically, Nora's dad was raping and molesting her with a bunch of friends and people from the club. And this was apparently a regular thing that would happen to Astra, so. As these horrible things were happening to her, she called out just in her mind and something, which she calls a Norful thing answered. And not only did it tear the people apart, it also raped them. And apparently it didn't do anything physical to Astra, although she was definitely traumatized even more by what she saw. So as Astra sleeps on the ground, everyone that heard that story, you know, they're they're like trying to recover from it. Judith is saying, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. This creature, do you think it's real? And John says, huh? you saw the mess in the cellar, what do you think? And Richie is starting to feel sick. It probably wasn't a good idea to get high right before that story. And Gary turns to John and says, what do we do, John? But Frank cuts in before John can answer and says, I say we blow the crap out of it and torch the joint. But John turns to Frank and says, don't be bloody daft. This is a terror elemental, not a rival biker gang. No, we've got to fight fire with fire. This Norfolk thing is powerful and dangerous, but it's her creation. It needs her to inspire it. So while she stays in a trance, it should be reasonably quiet as long as no one disturbs it. And Richie chimes in, you hope mate." And then we get an interesting scene here because John is a young man here. He is not the weathered learned magician that we've known in the past 10 issues or so. So without really thinking beyond this idea, he says to his friends, so what we've got to do is raise a really powerful demon to destroy it. And none of them like that, except Gary Lester, who says, yeah, but Richie chimes in saying you're joking. And Frank doesn't like what he hears either, because he says, no way, Jose, one hell beast is plenty, but John doesn't pay attention to them because he not only has Gary behind him, but Judith also encourages him saying, I'm into it, but how? And John says, all the kits back in the van. I've been assembling it for months since Benjamin got me that copy of the Grimoarium Verum. It's got all the ritual invocations spelled out like ABC. What do you think, Ben? But John is cut off as he hears Benjamin scream from down in the cellar. So John and his friends rush to help Benjamin. And as they rush down the stairs, they see Benjamin being pinned down to the floor by a giant dog with a baboon butt. And this dog kind of has a ghostly figure, like you can see through it, it's semi-transparent. But unlike a ghost, it's not empty. You can see a bunch of different organs inside of it and then like the girl said there's a bunch of hearts and other stuff growing on the outside and as John gets down the stairs Ben sees him and yells John help me and Frank rushes in behind John with a shotgun and says geez look at it and Richie who's following behind Frank says what's it doing to him oh god no because it seems to be trying to rape Benjamin so Frank pushes John aside and says get out of the freaking way and he takes aim with his shotgun and he shoots at the dog monster and this distracts it long enough for Benjamin to get out from underneath it. Then Frank shoots at it a second time and the dog monster disappears momentarily at least. And this gives everybody a chance to run up the stairs. And they're able to grab Benjamin as they do that. So once they get upstairs, they begin to question Benjamin and John says, Jesus Ben, what were you doing down there? And Benjamin who's on the ground holding his head in his hand says, just trying to t- take its p- p- picture. So if you didn't notice before this moment, Benjamin did not have a stutter and every other time we've seen his ghost, it does have a stutter. So this is the moment that gave him the stutter. So seeing the monster is all the encouragement John needs, even though he's probably going to do it anyway. So he looks at his friends and he says, right, that settles it. I'm going to do it. Who's with me? And by it, he means raise a stronger demon to kill this other demon. So Frank looks at John and says, not me, man. I met all my demons at Kassan. And Richie says, I can't. But just like before, Judith and Gary Lester are agreeing to it. And Anne-Marie says that she will look after Astra while this is all going on. So John turns to Richie since he's not going to be part of the spell and says, okay, fair enough, Richie. You take Benjamin out to the van and sort him out. Give him a vodka or something. So Richie takes Benjamin outside to the van. And then John turns to Anne-Marie and says, you can stay with the girl. We'll put a protective circle upstairs. You'll be fine as long as you don't come out. And Amory nervously replies, if you're sure. And John looks at her in the eyes and he knows that she has a crush on him. So he kind of manipulates her by saying, that's my girl. And we can see as Amory walks away, she has a very like happy smile on her face. Like she loved hearing those words come out of John's mouth. Then John turns to Frank and says, can you rig up that gas tank outside to blow this place to hell if we don't come out? And Frank answers, yeah, sure, but you're crazy, man. And John points at him and says, Just do it, right? And then John turns to Judith, who's the last person, and says, And Judith, you come with me, darling. We've got to prepare ourselves. And she looks John in the eyes and gives him a little smile and says, You mean, like, tantrically, I suppose? And John says, "Mm Mm-hmm. And you know what? I was actually wrong. There is one more person left that you might have remembered, but I forgot. And I think you were kind of supposed to forget the way that they laid this page out, because even John forgets, as Gary Lester says, What about me, John? And John turns to him and says, oh yeah, Gaz, you'd better go and see if you can catch a cat, man, a black one. And Gaz, I want it alive. So as Gary leaves to get the cat, John begins to set up like an altar in order to do the spell. He gets out his magical book. He starts lighting candles. There's some sort of golden goblet on the table. And as he does this, his narration says, like an intern called early to perform the surgeon's art. I unpack my bag of tricks with nervous hand. And as John does this, Judith says, This really turns you on, doesn't it? And John replies, I wouldn't do it if it didn't. Here, get this on. And then he hands Judith a big cloth, kind of like a toga. So she begins to take off her clothes and wrap that around herself. And as she undresses, she asks John, What you said to Frank about blowing up if anything goes wrong? And John answers, That was just to keep him out of mischief. Nothing can go wrong, I promise. And then Judith asks another question, So we're really going to conjure a demon from hell? And John replies, don't see why not. Seems to be just like cooking. As long as you've got the right ingredients and follow the recipe, voila. And then he begins to undress and asks her, you're not scared, are you? And she actually answers honestly. She says, yes, a bit, but I sort of like it, especially since that freaky Anne-Marie's out of the way with the kid. The way she makes sheep's eyes at you all the time is embarrassing. You're not making it with her, are you? And now John is wearing his toga and he gets close to her and he says, why? What's it to you? Jealous? And before she can answer, they're interrupted by Gary Lester coming in with a live cat in a bag and he begins to pull it out and he says, look, I've got it. Bastard thinks it's a tiger though. Scratch me all over. And then John turns to Gary and says, what? Oh yeah, the cat. Better let it go again and get kitted up. I've changed my mind about the sacrifice. Sorry, mate. So it seems John had sent Gary on that mission in order to just get him out of the place and stop bothering them. And he actually succeeded, which is probably pretty rare for Gary. So now that everything's ready, they begin to do the spell. And at first it's just saying words and rituals like holding up the magical stuff that they got and you know saying what it is and writing things on paper with ink that's made from blood. And over these panels, the narration says, the smoke of aromatics transcends the boundaries between earth and the realms beyond the magus dons the armor of the word. And we can see John holding up what looks like a short stick of wood, and he says, this is the rod of the art, hazelwood, cut at the hour of mercury. And the narration continues. He enhances his will with the machinery of the ritual, turning with the very wheels and cogs of the universal engine. Then we see John hold up a piece of paper and he says, this is the parchment flayed from a virgin kid. And he lays that on the table. Then he pulls out a knife and he says, This is the knife of the art forged from new steel on the day of Jupiter. And then he cuts his hand and he bleeds into a golden goblet on the table. And the narration says, he pays the piper, calls the tune, conducting an orchestra of power from a score writ with the juice of life. Then he begins chanting his spell as he uses a quill to write in his own blood on this parchment of virgin child skin. And what he's drawing and writing are a bunch of different symbols, there's like a diamond in the center of this paper and he's writing some sort of language on either side of it. And he's also drawing something on the interior of this diamond. And like I said, he's chanting a spell while he draws this saying, Helon, Tall Varf, Henon, Homonorium, Klemiak, Cerukliak, Agala, Tetramamaton, Cassili Osirmi, Durmuson, by this talisman and this naming character inscribed in blood with the pen of the art, I wake you, Sagatana. And then it seems like his eyes kind of roll back in his head as he takes that piece of paper that he has written the name of this demon on and he burns it in the candle flame. And he continues with his spell saying, Atalsalim, Asophiel, Elnostion, Beniel, Ahavala, Omor, Frangram, Oregine, Venite, Sagatana. I conjure thee, appear in human form, fair and agreeable, without noise or inconvenience, in order to obey my will. And with that, the spell is over, and they begin to look around, and the narration says, We wait, but nothing happens. Then John says, Come on, you bastard, where are you? And Gary and Judith turn to John with big smiles on their faces, like they're about to laugh, and Gary says, What now, John? Shall I get another cat? And Judith says, Yeah, good show. Shame about the punchline. But John doesn't laugh. He gets even more serious, and he says, quiet, shut up. It's not over yet. The tricky bastard's playing hard to get. You've got to show him who's boss. So he doubles down and he gets into a like a magical pose where he's got his hands held out over the flame. And he says, Sagatana, once again, by the power of the art here wrought around you, by the names of your lords, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Belial, attend me now, or burn forever in the fire of suns. And then he pauses again and looks around, and the narration says, but again, nothing. Not even the pathetic sputter of a damp squib. And as John looks around, he says, I can't understand it. I've done everything by the book. And then Judith goes over to John and says, it looks like this Grumarium verum recipe book thing that Benjamin sold you was a pig in a poke then. And then John bends down to light a cigarette on the candle in front of him, and he says, little sod, Wait until I get my hands on him. 200 quid that cost. And Judith replies, don't be too upset. I expect you'll get to meet a real demon one day. Then Gary walks over and says, looks like we'll have to let old Freewheel and Frank shoot it then. And John says, yeah, so it seems. Then we turn the page and we cut to Anne-Marie sitting with the passed out child Astra in the center of a protection symbol. And they're in like a different part of this club. So there's nobody around but them and the narration says, but then nothing is ever what it seems, however hard we wish it were. And as Anne-Marie is cradling Astra in her arms, all of a sudden we see a bright light appear just outside of the protection symbol, and it says to her, Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie, are you sleeping? Shall I slip into your dream, Anne-Marie? Do you want me? Come to me, Anne-Marie, I want you. And what's going on is out of this bright light appears what looks like a naked John Constantine. And as it alluded to before, Anne Marie definitely has a crush on him. So she sets Astra down on the ground and begins to crawl towards this naked John figure. And as she does, she says, yes. And as she gets closer, she definitely leaves the protection circle and she stands up and walks closer to John. And he says, kiss me, Anne Marie. And she once again says, yes. And it could be wrong about this, but it looks like she begins to kiss his chest. And as she kisses him on the nipple, he says, fold me tight into your warm flesh, Anne-Marie. Embrace me. And Anne-Marie says, oh yes, John, yes. And as she begins to embrace him, she begins to move her hands up and down his back. And he says, now feel me, Anne-Marie. And we can see that as she moves her hands up and down his back, that the skin of this fake John Constantine begins to ooze some kind of yellow liquid. Maybe it's bile. But once it begins, it begins to shower down onto her face. And as it covers her, John says, Ha, woman, you are spoiled. Run now. Get thee to a nunnery. And then she turns around and yells no as she runs out of the room. And not just the room. Actually, she runs out of a window and crashes through it. And she just falls from the second floor onto the ground in front of the bar. So this is apparently the origin story of Anne-Marie and how she became a nun. So we turn the page and we see that none of the other people heard that crash or any of that commotion from upstairs. So John, Judith and Gary are still in like the circle of protection that they made. And it seems like John has continued to try to bring about this demon. He now has some kind of special wand in his hand. And he says, Sagatana, by the power of this blasting wand, for the final time of asking, attend upon me, your master. And as John waits for a second to see if that did anything, We see Astra walking down the stairs behind them and Judith sees Astra and she says, John, look, what's?" And John cuts her off as he turns and sees Astra and says, Astra, Christ, what are you doing here? Get out quickly. But Astra looks at John and says, but you called me, I heard you call me. And John replies, no, I wasn't calling you. Please go back, it's not safe here yet. Then all of a sudden they begin to hear the growling and sounds of that spectral dog beast. And John says, no, Astra, don't wake him up. And Gary, I guess, doesn't really notice what's going on because he reaches for the girl and says, I'll go and grab the silly little. But he's cut off as the building begins to move and rattle around them, which causes like debris to fall from the ceiling. And Judith exclaims, oh God. And John grabs hold of them both and says, stop. Nobody breaks the circle, whatever happens. And then John remembers that Anne-Marie was with Astra upstairs and he asks, where the hell's Anne-Marie? And Astra answers, Anne-Marie jumped out the window. And John exclaims, What? But just as he says that, Astra says, Hello, Norful thing. And the giant spectral wolf bursts from the floor out from the basement, growling and snarling, and it moves towards Astra, who has fallen down onto the ground now that this wolf has appeared. And she is not inside the circle of protection. So as this giant dog moves towards her, Judith says, Oh, please don't. I can't watch. It's going to eat her. And the dog is moving slowly towards her. And as we turn the page, we see that Astra stands up and she says, here, boy. And she's got a smile on her face, which is kind of weird. And John is watching this and he's terrified. And the narration says, there is a fear which thrusts like splintered wood into the center of your being. It is the fear which comes with realization that you are utterly helpless, powerless and fragile trapped between the bloody jaws of unreason. And as the dog gets closer to Astra, she says, come on, come to mommy. And at first it looks like the dog is opening its mouth to bite her. But as Astra puts her hands on the dog's head and begins to like pet it kind of, it lets her hug it around the neck. And then as she gives it a hug, Astra's eyes begin to glow red and her grip gets a little bit more firm. And then her hands dig into the flesh of this spectral dog and she rips its head off. she turns around and shows the head to the group of john judith and gary and she has a very evil smile on her face and her eyes are still red and over the panels of her ripping this dog's head off the narration says that fear strikes now starting a slow churning earthquake in my bowel spreading erupting turning the whole world screaming on its head and as john and the group look on in fear it seems it comes together in his mind, and he finally figures out what happened. And the narration says, The ritual did work. The demon came, but not directly. And then John says out loud, Jesus, it's in the girl. And upon realizing this, John gets in his power stance and he holds out his hand and he says, Sagatana, Duke of Darkness and Despair, I command you, under heaven's fire, leave the girl unharmed and submit to my instruction. And the possessed Ashra says, I. Submit to you. Ha! I have obeyed you all I choose. Did I not come, although you could not make me? Did I not assume a human form, fair and agreeable without inconvenience or noise? Did I not dispatch this mad corrupt deformity, although I owed your impotent antique magic, no allegiance whatsoever? But John doesn't answer the demon's questions. He just yells back at her, Leave her now! And Astro looks at him and says, as you wish. So it be, Magus. And then she begins to vomit something pink out of her mouth. And it's not liquid that's coming out, it is the actual demon being what I would call birthed out of her mouth. And it's not really hurting Astra as it does this. But of course, John, Geary and Judith are looking at this in horror, and the narration says, the fibers of sanity's rope stretch to extremity, fray and unravel. A hideous miracle transpires before our eyes. Creation. And then we see Gary vomit next to them. And as the demon that has birthed out of Astra's mouth begins to take its shape, John says to Judith, Go! This is my problem! Run! And as John looks on in horror at this thing begin to take form, the narration says, The ghastly, bloody birth of nightmare. And then we see the final form of this demon. And it basically looks like a blob of pink that has amassed itself from a bunch of different beings because it has multiple heads and not all of humans. Some of them are of insects or skeleton horses and stuff, but some of them are human and all of them are smiling evilly at John. And the body does have like two arms and two legs, but they are not all human sized or human type. And as this demon looks at John, it says, you are pathetic, Constantine, wallowing in ignorance. You seek to constrain me know you not the root of all power is in naming, and you have no conception of who I am. And John looks kind of confused and scared by this, and he says, but but he's cut off by the demon who shows John the symbol that John had drawn on the piece of paper that he burned during the ritual, and the demon says, the character you described was mine, but Sagatana's not the name that fits, and thus, your invocation lacked the weight of magical imperative. So John raises his fist at the demon and says, So why did you come, chum? And the demon answers, Because it greatly pleasures me to chase arrogance and corrode the brass of vanity. It's with the witless of you sort that hell enjoys its finest sport. And now, since I have freely pranced and danced according to your futile arts, Justice decrees that I should claim my fee." And then the demon waves its hands towards Astra, and it continues saying, "'I'll take this child of tortured heart to ease me through eternity.'" And at hearing this, John rushes forward in between Astra and the demon, and he yells, "'No, I screwed up, take me if you must.'" And the demon just kind of smiles at this and says, "'You, no, you are mine already, and your friends.'" Fresh blooms to be anticipated, plucked according to my whim. I want her now. There is no negotiation. Although, a special dispensation. If you insist, I give you leave. Accompany her below. And then the demon opens a giant mouth in its chest, and as John and Astra look inside the mouth and see the multitudes of the horrors of hell inside of it, the demon continues saying, Step forward, hero, if you would conquer fear and fully comprehend the meaning of the words, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And I guess because John can't think of anything else to do, he decides to walk with Astra into this gaping mouth towards the hordes of hell. And John grabs Astra's hand and as they walk, the narration says, wrapped firmly in my own, her hand is still and cold, a reptile trembling in the dark. I lead her unprotesting, through the gates of hell. Now, in the meantime, while all this is going on with John and Astra, we get some panels showing what's going on outside the bar with all of John's friend who have left this horrible place. And it looks like they're all resorting to plan B, which was blow the place up. So as Richie and Frank prepare the bomb, Judith says, do it Frank. And as Frank gets his matches ready, he says, are you sure? And Judith screams, just do it. He's not coming out. So Frank strikes the match and as he bends down to light a trail of gasoline on fire that goes back into the bar, he says, okay, get back behind the van. Sorry, John. And then he drops the match onto the gasoline. Then we cut back to the mouth of hell that John and Astra are walking in. And we see John literally has a trick up his sleeve. He pulls out the wand he was using during the spell from his sleeve. And the narration over this says, but I can't do it. Nobody could. No one could walk willingly into this place. I have to try the blasting wand. What's left to lose? So he pulls the wand out and he says, by the power of Adonai, the one who rules all, with this consecrated rod of the art, demon, I blast you to oblivion!" And he can't finish his spell because all of a sudden the rod of the art is turned into a live serpent in his hand. And then the ground and everything begins to shake and the narration says, nothing to do with me but the universe now bucks and quakes around us. So failing with the wand, John just decides to run. So he grabs Astra's hand and he says, come on girl, run! And they begin running as fast as they can back the way they came out of the mouth. And the teeth definitely look like they're closing as John and Astra approach. But it does look like they're gonna make it and as John jumps through the mouth with Astra behind him, his narration says, I grip her tight, dragging through a blindness of fire and smoke. God! Let there be light, and there is light, and I make it. I lead the innocent from hell into salvation. Then we cut to the outside where all of John's friends are watching the place begin to burn, and Richie says, look, someone's coming out. And at that moment, John bursts from the doors, and he's still holding on to Asher's hand, but of course he's screaming and freaking out, and Frank goes over to him and says, come on, man, let go, it's all over. And then Frank reaches out and grabs Asher's arm, and John yells at him saying, No, leave her. You can't part us now. We've been to hell and back. And we can see that the way that John and Frank are both holding Astra's arm, that even though they're not showing it, Astra's body is not attached to that arm. So Astra was actually pulled into hell once the jaws closed and John was only able to pull her arm out before that happened. So John realizes he has failed and he looks down in anger and fear and all those different emotions. And Richie comes up to him in response to what John said about going to hell and back and he says, do you think so man? I think you're probably still there. And then with all his anger and frustration, John looks up and screams, "No!" And then from the flames of the burning club comes the demon's voice saying, weep now children, rant and tear your hair. Remember, hell is your eventual home. Consider this a taste of things to come. Then as we turn the page, we cut back to present day where John, you know, now older, is looking at this burned down club and standing next to him are the ghosts of all his friends who one by one had died just like the demon said. And over this, John's narration says, Catastrophe from start to finish. Inexcusable. Stupid. Bloody shameful catastrophe. No one to blame. I hold the smoking gun. The accusatory fingers point my way. And then John looks down at the puddle next to him that had the plastic doll arm in it, Which, of course, is a reminder of Astra's arm, and the narration continues. Still, we all make mistakes, don't we? Even demons. The only difference is, I've paid for mine. Two years in Ravenscar's secure facility for the dangerously deranged. We all paid. Anne-Marie took holy orders. Benjamin got his stutter. Lester got his junk habit. Richie went into computers. Judith went to work with abused children. And Frank went off biking around the world. And then John lights a cigarette and the narration continues. And just as the demon promised, hell took them. Every one. But like I say, we all make mistakes. And the demons was finally telling me his name. Nergal. And then John takes a puff and smiles and the narration continues. Nergal. This is where we started it and this is where it'll finish. This is the killing ground where I take my revenge just as soon as I work out exactly how. It's a funny thing. I've only just realized that Casanova means Newcastle. Perhaps that's what the fortune teller on Clacton Pier meant when she said philandering would be my downfall. Oh, well, we'll see. And John has a very mischievous grin on his face in this last panel. And that, my friends, is the end of the issue. So we'll have to wait till next time to see what John comes up with as far as a plan to get revenge on Nergal. So if you guys have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at planes, trains, and comic books, all one word at gmail.com. And we will see you on the next one.